This is episode 97 of Offscript with Trish Close, intimate interviews and fun conversations with interesting people. Joining me today via Skype, I have Ron Warlin. Hello, Ron. Good morning. Morning. Um, you are retired currently, correct? Semi-retired. Semi-retired. Um, you are, I should, I should call you Dr. Warlin, shouldn't I? That'd be fine. <laughs> okay, <laughs> you, you are a cosmetic and plastic and reconstructive surgeon, and you have been for many, many years. Well, I haven't done cosmetic surgery for 10 years, but reconstructive, and I still do um, a hand surgery and uh, congenital uh, birth defect surgery. Okay. Um, in fact, you're fairly famous in this, in this valley. Dr. Warland, a lot of people know you. Well, um, I've gotten in a lot of trouble, so they know me. <laughs> in fact, I will say your daughter is quite famous, Judge Kelly. That's correct. She's a terrific young lady, very talented. Judge Kelly Ravasapur. And then on mm -hmm. top of that, your son-in-law is also quite famous, Dr. Ravasapur, the dentist, or is he's an orthodontist, right? That's correct, yes. Okay. Um, you have quite the family. Ron Warlin. Yeah. Well, I'm very blessed. Okay. Very blessed. Well, let's get into this, Ron. Where are you from originally? Um, I grew up in the East Coast um, in New Jersey. Where you're from is really where you graduate from high school. So I graduated from high school in New Jersey, northern New Jersey. My father worked in New York City. Oh, okay. What did your dad do? Uh, he was uh, a, a, a CPA and eventually went into working as treasurer for large corporations in the city. Okay, and mom, what'd mom do? Uh, mom uh, was a uh, one-room school teacher in Nebraska when in the very beginning, but she was a housewife. And then when my twin brother and I went to uh, college, she worked full-time to help uh, pay for tuition. Okay, that was gonna be uh, my she next worked, She worked as a secretary in a grammar school, which means she ran the school. <laughs> exactly. My mom was an administrative secretary for years and um, you learn quickly they are the ones who run the business. Exactly. Okay. And the school nurse. She was school nurse? No, she said the school nurse and she ran the school. Gotcha. Grammar okay. school. I believe it. Uh, so my next question was going to be, did you grow up with siblings? You're a twin. I have an identical twin brother, yes. Okay. Um, Kelly actually mentioned to me that you are a twin, but you're, um, you're, you and your twin were, are sort of famous. You were in a commercial. Well, I did many commercials at one time. Really? Did you want to be an actor? Absolutely not. I needed money for college. <laughs> so let's back up a little bit. What was it like growing up in New Jersey? Well, I, it was uh, basically happy days. Um, Little League Baseball, Boy Scouts, a nice community church, um, small community. Uh, everything was good. It was uh, Eisenhower was president, and the early 60s were were a good time for America, and people frequently reflect back to that as being a, a wonderful time to grow up. So I had a, a good upbringing, a good school. I was able to get into a very good college, and uh, everything went well, although I, I did study hard. Mm -hmm. And did you have any other siblings, or was it just you and your twin? Just my brother. Okay. What's your brother's what? name? Rick. Richard. Rick. Rick. Okay. So Rick and Ron. Yep. Okay. Um, what was it like growing up with a twin? 
Well, I've been asked that a lot, but I have never done been anything else. It was just terrific. I always had a guy to throw a ball to, so it was wonderful. We were we were pretty good athletes, so it was uh, outstanding to always have somebody to play with. Okay, what we sports? Got really well, what sports did you two play? Um, in high school, <clears throat> in high school, it was uh, track and uh, football. Football was the most important thing. Really, were you guys good? Yes, not now. <laughs> what <laughs> position? I was a wide receiver and a defensive back. My brother was a quarterback and a running back. Oh man, talk about powerful duo there. So when you yeah. were the two of you are in high school, are you thinking <clears throat> that you want to go into plastic cosmetic reconstructive surgery? Oh no, no. Um, okay. First of all, forget the cosmetic stuff. I went into surgery to do reconstructive cleft lip, burn hand, but to make a living, you have to do cosmetic. Okay. Uh, I wanted to be a doctor. I didn't. I didn't know I wanted to be a plastic surgeon until I was in medical school. Okay, so you knew growing up you wanted to be a doctor. Yeah, we had a wonderful family practice, uh, family practitioner. So my brother and I both decided we didn't want to be doctors, and that's what we did. Wow. Um, and what college did you go to? I went to Williams College. Uh, it's a very old school, uh, all men back then. Founded in 1793 in Western Massachusetts, and my brother went to Dartmouth. Okay. It's a, it's a very premier school, very difficult. Why did the two of you decide to go to different colleges? Was it time to just sort of separate? Yeah, I think it was time when we found we did well, and interestingly enough, then we went back and got went to the same medical school after college. And what medical school was that? University of Rochester. I think they're about, uh, there have been about 12 doctors here in Medford uh, that spent time training at Rochester. That's so That's funny. That's why I ended up here. There's so many here. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's such a small world, isn't it? Um, let's talk a little bit about medical school then. You, again, you knew early on you wanted to be a doctor, you and your brother. When you get into medical school, how does that flush out? How do you know, you know, does it just occur to you one day, oh, this is it, this is what I want to do? Well, the, the early, in the, in formerly, it's a little different in med school today, but for many years, the first two years of medical school had very little clinical. Uh, it was mostly uh, studying uh, sciences and so forth. And the last two years, you were working with patients the whole time. But in the second year, we received uh, lectures from different doctors, and you get, uh, get exposed to different aspects of the field of medicine. And when Dr. McCormick, who eventually became my chief many years later, gave a talk about plastic surgery, I said, that's what I want to do. So that was my second year of medical school. I kind of thought I wanted to do that. And why? I was just amazed what cleft lip work could do and also repairing the, the major trauma that I saw. Mm -hmm. And that is a huge, that's become a huge part. I think a lot of people think about um, plastic and reconstructive surgery mm -hmm. as um, they, they view it in a certain way, but a major part of this practice, this field, is reconstructive. It wasn't my practice. Some people don't do much reconstructive, but I, I did equally uh, reconstructive as well as cosmetic. Okay. Some um, people just cosmetic or right. try to. Right, yeah, exactly. Um, so let's back up a little bit and talk about these commercials. You did commercials while you were in college, you said? Um, when I was a senior in high school, there was an article in Seventeen magazine about a pair of twin girls. And my mother said, you know, let's send a picture. Let's do have them follow up. So when I was a senior in high school, they did a big spread and featured my brother and I in Seventeen magazine as twin boys. And that sort of started it. 
Then I got a call and we did uh, we did a search commercial, a yellow page commercial, and then from then on, I, ju I just worked single. There was not, no more twin twin activity. <laughs> Solo I did work. That for, yeah. Okay, so you sent in a picture of you and your brother to Seventeen Magazine, and they did a whole spread on you guys. My mother sent it in. Your mom sent I it in. No part of this. Really? Were you upset <laughs> no. with her? I don't care. <laughs> it was you, fun. you seem super laid back, Ron. I don't, I don't think that would be something that would have bothered you. No, but I do still have a shoebox of uh, fan letters from the girls who read the articles. <laughs> I think my mom kept it. I think we still have a shoebox of all these love letters, of course, people I never met. <laughs> that is hysterical. So Kelly was mentioning something about was the double mint commercial? It was, it, people always say that we did a search commercial with a pair of twin girls who were, act, who were Broadway uh, actors, actresses, I mean. But that commercial ran for three years and really, really helped defray the expenses of my college. So it was a, it was a real, real bonus. Okay. Pretty good. And then after the twin stuff, you said you did some solo commercials. So, I mean, how many commercials are we talking? Dozens? Hundreds? Oh, probably a dozen, but then again, hundreds of, uh, of film shots. I did magazines and then uh, posters for uh, bulletin boards and, uh, I mean, uh, uh, billboards and just clothing clothing magazines or whatever. Wow. Every time in a magazine, you see somebody wearing clothing. Well, I'm just one of those guys wearing some clothing. Hey, Nothing special. That is special, I would say. Did you have an agent? Oh, I was with Ford Agency. I got into the best one in New York City. Yeah. I mean, Ron, that's kind of a big deal. That's kind of a dream for most people. That's okay. <laughs> Shrugs his shoulders. Meh. Um, but making some pretty good money from that. It was good at the time because, you know, otherwise in construction, we're making a dollar and a quarter an hour. So you yes, had, that's what it was. you had zero desire to do this professionally. Absolutely. Okay. This was just to get you through medical school? Absolutely. Okay. My How last commercial was uh, uh, a copper tone commercial where I was in swimsuit jumping in the ocean, and that was in 1969. That was my last job. Then did, I became a doctor. Did you, at the time, doing all these commercials and being in magazines, and did you get recognized a lot? No. Really? Not really. That surprises mm -hmm. me. Low key. Okay. It's, it's, it's just a job. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, how long was medical school for you? Well, the medical school is four years. Okay. Um, and and that's, then, uh, that's standard, right? It's always four years? Always four years after four years of college, yes. Okay. What happens after medical school? You know that you want to be um, go into plastic and reconstructive surgery. So what happens next? Well, when you finish medical school, then you do what's called an internship and followed by years of training. So I went to UCLA and spent five years doing general surgery, which you had to do. And then after that, I went back to University of Rochester to do uh, hand surgery, reconstructive surgery, head and neck cancer surgery, which is a plastic surgery training program. Okay. Was there any sort of motivation behind going into this field? Just a love of what it was. I had no idea how long it would take when I started. I don't know if I'd have done it. It was tough. Back in the old days, uh, certain programs and training did mandated work that's not allowed today. For example, UCLA was on call 24-7 for five years. 
uh, no weekends off, one week vacation a year. And they took that away because I got in the reserves. So it was really hard, um, very hard. Yeah. And um, I'm glad I did it, but it was it was a challenging, but very competitive. Just 12 interns in the country at UCLA, and I was happy to be one of them. Wow. You wanted to go into this to help people. Um, that's part of what, what every doctor does. I mean, it's not just plastic surgery. No matter what a doctor does, there's got to be some motivation to be, make something yourself to perhaps improve, uh, improve upon humanity, do some good. But... Uh, Every doctor is the same. I've, There's nothing special what I did. Well, I, I would disagree with that. I, I have interviewed several people, some doctors, some surgeons, and then some who actually work with surgeons. And they say that surgeons are in a class all of their own. You guys are crazy. You work crazy hours. You're always on call. Well, that's one of the reasons I retired, because after covering the emergency room for 42 years, uh, when you're 67 years old and it's three o'clock in the morning and you get called for a car accident and someone's, uh, uh, it's just hard. So yeah, it was, it, we did, we did work pretty hard. Okay. Especially when I first got here in Medford, there were 13 mills. So we were up every night operating on, on trauma from the mills. It was very difficult. And as the mills dispersed, uh, the emergency room coverage got much easier. Hmm. Okay. But it's good work. Good patients. So you went to, you interned at UCLA. Right. How long were you there? Five years. Wow, that's a, a good chunk of time. Um, an intern the entire time? No, no. After you, after now they call it instead. It's it was five years of residency. Now they don't call it an intern. They call it a resident. So I was five years to get board certified in general surgery, and then the one end to plastic surgery. Gotcha. What happens after UCLA? Well, I went to University of Rochester. That's back. That's where I always really wanted to be, uh, but I thought it'd be good if I was able to go to California for five years, then come back because I wanted to work with this one doctor, and I was very fortunate that he was still leading the program and I worked with him. Uh, what doctor was that? His name is McCormick. Actually, when I was a third-year uh, medical student, I took a course on wound healing, and uh, there was a little party at his home after the, for the four students that took the course, and I met my wife in his home which I thought was interesting because she was with another friend and I didn't have a day. So I talked to her and I said, but it's the girl I'm going to marry. I, I knew that that night. So I called my friend and said, when you stop dating her, give me a call. And six months later, he called me and we were all set. What? So wait, back up. Why was she there? She was a date of a good friend of mine. He was also taking the course. Okay. And I was, I was seated next to her and her date, who is still a good friend of mine, was talking to the doctor, so I had to talk to somebody, and that's how I met my wife. That's Just like that. So, fantastic. And you said you knew right then and there she was the one? That night. Really? What was it about her? Just her sparkle and her intelligence and uh, everything about her. So you told your buddy, hey, when you guys are calling it quits, you let me know. That's right. You, didn't try, you didn't try to steal her away? Oh, I, I don't act like that. No, oh, that's okay. not my purpose. It's not your style. I knew it happened. <laughs> <laughs> well, clearly they weren't meant to be. You two were. Well, I guess. Yes. Okay. So he actually called you up and said, hey, we're, we're done. You can go after her now. That's correct. That's awesome. I love I, that story. I, 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 
Not quite in those terms, though. It's well, like we're not dating anymore. It's okay to call her, okay? Okay. It, the, the courtship began, should we say that? Sure. Okay. <laughs> sure. Okay, so you are back in uh, Rochester. Yes. Okay, and you're working with this one doctor. Um, so are you at the school, you're helping teach, or you're actually doing other work? No, when you're, it's a residency and training at Rochester. So after my general surgery at UCLA for five years, then I had two years of training in Rochester where I learned the art of uh, plastic surgery, okay. hand surgery and, and cosmetic. Was this doctor, he specialized in reconstructive surgery? Yes, he was a very well-known hand surgeon, but there were other teachers there, but he was the professor, the head of the department. Okay. And uh, became a good friend. How long did you work with him? Well, just the two years. Mm -hmm. And then uh, I moved to Medford in 1977 after the training. Okay, how on earth did you go from Rochester to Medford, Oregon? Well, I mentioned earlier, there were so many doctors here already. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was uh, one of the doctors here asked me to come and work with him. I see. And, uh, so I came. Okay. So he had a practice here? Yes. Okay. Um, so you moved to Medford in 1977. That's correct. And you never left. No, no I'm still here. <laughs> <laughs> you, have seen, you have seen this valley go through so many changes, I'm sure. Well, you know, it, it's like the, the frog and the, and, the, and the frying pan. I've been there, and I did. I don't really notice a lot of change, hmm. uh, except for you look up the hillside and the development of the homes and so forth. But I don't think the traffic's all that bad, and you know it's pretty pretty easy to get around. So I I don't really notice a change, but certainly it has changed. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. People who talk about the traffic being bad in Southern Oregon, I, I'm not quite sure they know what traffic actually looks like, in my opinion. Uh, let's talk about. You move here, you work, who, what doctor are you working with when you move here? I worked with Earl Parrish for two years and then I went on my own. And you opened your own practice? That's correct. Okay, what kind of things were you doing when you first moved here as far as surgeries go? Well, it, a lot of, a lot of, like I mentioned earlier, there's a lot of the number of mills here. So we had a lot of trauma surgery and uh, I did uh, carpal tunnel and Dupuytren's contracture and breast augments and tummy tucks and some facelifts. And that, you do more of those as you uh, get a larger practice. Um, and then whatever came in the emergency room. Actually, uh, Roger Millar was the first heart surgeon here, and he was my neighbor. And he needed, he needed someone to help him. So I did a fair amount of assisting on the heart surgeries when he started, started working, just because I didn't have a lot of work in the very beginning. Mm -hmm. So it was good. It okay. Was good. What's the challenge, um, you know, talking about reconstructive surgery, I guess it's just really never occurred to me that you would help with accidents and, and mill trauma. I mean, it makes sense, obviously, but what are the challenges when you're doing reconstructive surgery on a hand, for instance? Well, the hand surgery is, to me, uh, my, my favorite work. And uh, the challenge is the anatomy. The hand is a very intricate uh, um, it's, it's an interesting thing in that there, there are many nerves, tendons, and so forth. And so to understand the anatomy and the function, the, the sliding of tendons through pulley systems, working with bones and joints. So it's, I think of the challenge is, uh, is trying to put things back together so they work. Right. And it, uh, 
Yeah, a lot of times you just take, you have people have problems with the, the fingers coming down. We open that up. That's called Dupuytren's. That's my favorite surgery. Um, and obviously there's carpal tunnel with compression on nerves. There's bone. There's arthritic surgery. So it's a it's a specialty in it, unto its own. And actually, several of the orthopedists here in, in town only do hand surgery. Hmm. Go back to that favorite one you mentioned. What was that called again? Dupuytren surgery. I think they're advertising on TV. John Elway has a finger that's bent down a little bit, and they're talking about him doing injection. Well, the the surgery for that is was my favorite operation. You have to take out scar tissue between the nerves to straighten out the fingers, and so to me it was. Uh, a challenge and a lot of fun, and I got got pretty good at it. What kind of mill trauma did you see? Well, mostly uh, hands would be caught in, in saws, so different saw injuries. Um, yeah, they were, they were pretty nasty. Oh. Uh, but the mill, the patients here in Medford, the men were always really good patients. They wanted to get back to work. I worked with them. I never sent anybody to physical therapy. I did it myself. I encouraged them, and they they were great. And I talked to my hand surgeons around the country. In Chicago, New York, and they say when someone comes in with a workers' comp, they never want to go back to work with them. The people in Medford were really great. They wanted to go back to work, and they all, almost all went back. Yeah. Well, we're seeing that now, just in this pandemic. People are just desperate to get back to work and open up their business. It's terrible. I certainly understand. Um, so I want to go back to the mill trauma. It grosses me out a little bit. But did you ever see a patient that came in with something that was so awful, you're like, I, I can't fix that? Or did you try and work on every single patient that you saw? Well, for example, uh, one of my first calls in practice, I got a call from the emergency room, and I said, there's a splinter in a hand. And I said, oh, Lord, do we have to go in to do emergency work on splinters? But I went in, it was a piece of wood going through the hand, through the nerves, and through the tendons out the other side. So this is a real splinter. So I realized when they, that the things will be interesting. Now, obviously, when, the, when things are cut off and missing, you can't make it normal. You just try, try to get a healed wound, so you do the best you can. But these hands don't come out normal, but they come out functional most of the time. And that's the most important part, right? Of course. Of okay. Course. Um, and then as far as the emergency room stuff, uh, even with your own practice, were you still on call with hospitals if they had a car accident, for instance? Absolutely, 20, all the time. Really? Yeah, so it'd be frustrating. It, every once in a while you get a bad emergency in the middle of a, of a day in your office, and of course you have to go take care of that. And, uh, and then nights are tough. You could usually put it off and then you work at night, but sometimes you, know, you don't get too much sleep because you've been operating most of the night, and then you have to do your elective day the next day. But that's okay. That's what it was. That's what I signed up for. Exactly. Uh, what kind of um, emergency trauma did you see? Is there anything that sticks out to you? There were a lot of automobile accidents with facial trauma, bad lacerations and so forth. That and the early on, there were a lot of law hands into lawnmowers, uh, old men using table saws, cutting off the ends of their fingers. That was, you know, you give about four or five of those a week. Um, dog bites. Um, and then lacerations on children, sometimes the pediatricians would like a plastic surgeon to do it and we'd come in and do those. For sure. Uh, my husband is a paramedic and fire captain with Medford Fire Department, and he has seen dog bites. And he says those are horrendous because it's, there's a lot of tearing. Um, it's, you know, it's never like a clean cut, like, you know, maybe a table saw or something like that. Um, was there any sort of trauma you saw that was worse than another? 
No, they, when you see a dog bite, though, the thing is, is that the tissue is there. It's just distorted. So your, your job is to put it back together. Rarely is the bite take the tissue away like a shark bite. So the trick is to get it, you get the pieces back together, but most importantly, to prevent infection. Because all bites are, are associated with uh, bacteria. For sure. Um, so. And, you know, I'm assuming if someone, especially like, let's say a car accident or even, you know, a dog bite or whatever to the face, your job is, is critical. Yes, you're putting things back together, but, you know, I'm just thinking if there's something to my face and I go and I want that put back together, I need someone who's really good at their job because it's my face. You're putting your face out there in the world and you want it to look the way it did before you had this trauma occur. I can understand that. Right? I mean, you're, yes. you're somewhat of, I mean, that's a big deal, Ron. Like, you know, being able to put someone's face back together or their hand back together where it's at least functional and it looks like a hand. I mean, I'm, I'm fairly, I don't want to say I'm super vain, but I mean, that's an important part in someone's life, having their face look like it did before they had this trauma. Yeah, that's one of the reasons I was in training until I was 34 years old before I had my first job. Um, you're well trained to do these things. And of course, you learn new things every year. But uh, that's, you, you just assume that that's your responsibility and you do the best you can. Okay. And then let's talk a little bit about, is it cleft palate? Yes. Is, is, that, is that considered reconstructive or is that considered plastic surgery? Or cosmetic? No, plastic. Yeah, yeah. forget cosmetic. Plastic oh, forget it. I'm going to cross it out. I'm going to cross it out. The cleft palate and cleft lip work is what I do now, and I've been doing it since 1991. And that's my uh, my joy in life today is traveling the world and operating on children with birth defects. Yes, we're going to talk about that. Talk to me first about okay. cleft palate. What what is that surgery? Break it down for me. Well, I'm board certified in general surgery, hand surgery, and plastic surgery. And the cleft palate is the hardest operation there is. Uh, what happens is the roof of the mouth is open. So when you look in the patient's mouth, you're looking into the nose. Wow. Uh, and so what we have to do is try to mobilize tissues on the roof of the mouth based on a one millimeter vessel, slide them together and heal them. And uh, I've done over a thousand and everyone is difficult. Really? But that's what, that's what I do now. What what are the issues if that doesn't get fixed? Well, the issues are, first of all, the most important thing is speech. Mm. When we talk, we put our tongue up to the roof of the mouth. Well, if your tongue just flips up to the open airway, they lose air and the speech is very bad. So that's the main thing. Um, and if you don't get to them before 18, 18 months or two years of age, they never learn to talk properly. Now, also, uh, they will lose food through their liquids through their nose when they eat because there's no, there's no roof to the mouth. But the main reason we do the surgery is for speech. For speech, okay. And then cleft lip surgery, what is that? Well, the, there's a defect, the lips never come together. So when you see your child, you'll have a, an opening from the, from the open, uh, the lower lip up to the nose. So the nose is wide and there's a big gap there. So they're, they're fairly unattractive, but they can be made to look normal in a, a very easy operation. Okay, and you said cleft palate's a very difficult surgery to do? Yes, it is. How so? Well, you're bending over upside down, so physically it's very hard, and then you have to mobilize tissues to get skin and mucosa 
and tissue and pull it together without pulling too tight. So you have to free the artery, which, which supplies that little bitty thing. And it's just very challenging, very challenging operation. And this operation is typically done on very small patients. Yeah, I, I, I don't like to do a child under 12 months of age, hmm. but normally 15 months, 18 months. But when I go on my mission work around the world, we'll operate on people up to teenagers. When did you start this mission work? When did you get this idea? how this come about? Uh, Dr. Pons and I are still very good friends as a plastic surgeon, retired. We were at a meeting in Seattle in 1990, and I was given a paper on nerve work, nerve surgery, and a doctor from OHSU said, hey, look, we're looking for some guys to help out in Oaxaca, Mexico. So we said it was sign us up. So I started in 1991, and I worked with Ken Pons there for about eight years, and then I did it on my own. And so I've been doing it since 1990, 91. 1990. Wow. And where have you been? I've uh, been 46 missions. So, uh, you know, Philippines, Mexico, uh, China, Vietnam, uh, Venezuela, uh, Peru, uh, Guatemala. Dominican Republic, uh, uh, India, few places. <laughs> Just a few. Yeah. Um, any part of the world where you saw these birth defects worse than any other part, or is it all typically the same? Actually, the mother and child are the same in every country. Um, when the mother walks in, she's frightened and nervous. She's going to meet someone who's going to probably, possibly help her child. And it's the same operation. There's some with different colors, but the reactions are, there, there are differences in, in terms of how mothers react. Some people in China may act differently than the person in India and the person in Guatemala, but it's the same problem. So we, if we can fix it, then everybody feels happy. Awesome. And after you fix this, what reaction do you get? Uh, it's, it's always very, sim very similar. One of my favorite ones is a, a 34-year-old lady in Guatemala and she had a horrible bilateral lip wide open. And I remember she uh, jumped, she asked for a mirror in the recovery room and she jumped out of the bed and started hugging everybody. But usually the mothers are tearful and happy. And, um, and it just, it's very warm to see. I, we still get tears of happiness when, when we see a, a very nice uh, reaction. We always get a good result, but it's, it's, it's interesting that you still feel really good about it. Sure, that's the biggest reward right there. Mm -hmm. And these are, you're doing this for free? Sure. Just out of the kindness of your heart? Well, one, one person, a neighbor asked, why do you do it? And I said, why not? You can, right? That's right. I said I can. I love that. I love uh, that, Ron. That warms my heart. That gave me goosebumps. Um, what was the last mission you took? Um, actually, uh, late February this year, I was doing a teaching mission in Guadalajara. Uh, working with residents, cleft lip and palate. I was supposed to be in Myanmar in uh, in two weeks. I'm supposed to go to Myanmar again in uh, um, this October, and then again in Cebu City, Philippines, this December. But I don't know if we'll be able to go. Yeah. Right now we're, we're up. Are you sad? Yeah, for sure. Are you hoping after things quiet down a, a little bit, you'll be able to go back out there and do these missions? I have to. Why is that? Because I'm a terrible golfer. <laughs> I, I, this, this is my passion, and I'm very fortunate that I'm very good at it. I've done it many years, and uh, 
I look forward to continuing to be. Uh, I'm very fast and good at it. And I'm if I if my skills fall, I don't know, but I'm I, I have to do it. it otherwise, uh, it just it's just part of my life. Mm, I love that. That is amazing. Well, Ron, we're going to wrap up a little bit. Um, I want to get to the final three. Uh, best advice you've ever been given. Uh, my father was a successful executive in New York City, relatively successful, but he always had a boss. And he told his boys, if there's any way possible you can work for yourselves, it would be great. And we told him, Dad, we want to be doctors. And he said, that's it. We thought, we, but then, you know, in 1977, you were working a lot more for yourself than you are today with the government controls and so forth. But uh, the best advice was not to have a boss. Not other to have than a my boss. Wife. Okay, I'm going to write that down. That'll be my that'll be my new uh, new step. Uh, and if you ever left this place, Southern Oregon, what would you miss the most? What would bring you back here? Oh man, you know, and I think of how beautiful the, beautiful the town is with the mountains, proximity to the ocean, the river, and I think of myself in Cebu City and Guatemala City, Shindigong, Bangladesh, horrible crowded cities. It's just a beautiful place to be. I have good friends here. My I have family here. Uh, I don't, I, I, like I said earlier, there's no traffic. I love uh, my activities with the Episcopal Church and our Rotary Club. And it's such a great medical medical community that I feel if, if you need something, you can get it done by, by a real pro. So it's a, it's a wonderful place to live. And also, low humidity, good climate, and no mosquitoes. Amen. I grew up in South Carolina. I will never live yeah. in a place with humidity and mosquitoes again. I am sorry. I just can't do it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, all right, final meal, final drink. What would that look like, Ron? It would be uh, a cheeseburger. <laughs> and, uh, I'm sorry, I gotta turn this. You're off. fine. It would be a cheeseburger, and uh, on our on our honeymoon, we had some pina coladas, and I haven't had one in 20 years, so it'd be a cheeseburger and a pina colada, and a couple uh, data sticks. Uh, that's the best pairing I think I've ever heard on this uh, podcast. Cheeseburger in paradise right there. Oh, there you go. Yeah, right? Ron, you have been so much fun. I am so grateful that you exist in this world. And thank you so much for all the hard work that you do out there. I really hope you can get back out and uh, continue with your missions. And I'm sure lots of people hope that too. Well, thank you. I've, I've had a blessed life and I'm blessed. Okay. Thank you. If you are uh, listening to this podcast on Apple's podcast app and you like it, please subscribe, rate, and review. We're also on Stitcher, Google Play, and SoundCloud. And you can watch this podcast at ktvl.com. Just click on Features. And you can also find it on YouTube. Just search Offscript with Trish Close. One more time, Ron, War uh, Ron Worland, Dr. Worland, I should say. Thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate it. My honor. Thank you very much.